Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's been a pretty heavy week uh, here in in, uh, in Louisville and in Kentucky. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, about some of that stuff. Before we get into what we're talking about on the show, though, I did want to say that we had uh, Representative Buddy Wheatley as our guest on the show. We talked to him quite a bit about his new district that he has been drawn into after the redistricting process. We talked to him about you know his approach to the session, some of the bills that he's sponsoring, including a raft of kind of just election reform legislation and also some of the smaller bills he's involved in, including one about cremation um, and his push to uh, include hazardous workers into the tier two pension system. So we talked a lot about that. Um, he's he's great. You know, he's, he's in his second term, um, but he clearly works really hard and is passionate about the stuff that he's he's doing up there in Frankfurt. So I was very happy to talk to him. Jasmine, uh, what did you think about our interview with, with Representative Wheatley? I enjoyed our interview with Representative Wheatley. He had a... A really positive outlook about redistricting, I think. <laughs> it, it, it takes a very special person to be a Democratic representative in Frankfurt these days, and Buddy Wheatley is that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to that interview, though, we do we do have lots of things to talk about. Um, you know, we have a pretty significant legislative update. I'm going to be talking about HB4, which was basically a, a cut to in, unemployment benefits here in Kentucky. Jasmine's going to talk about the, the push to ban charitable bail, charitable bail funds that the Republicans are making. And I'm going to be talking about a few of the social policy bills that they have been moving through the legislature and we have a short segment about andy Bashir's tax relief pol- uh, you know uh, push that he started making today today's wednesday the 16th of february but where we're going to start is uh with louisville mayoral candidate craig greenberg who uh, survived a, a shooting uh, attempt earlier this week so on monday uh quintez brown uh, allegedly shot a gun at louisville mayoral candidate craig greenberg in his campaign office in butchertown one of the bullets grazed Mr. Greenberg's clothing, and yeah, the place actually where this where this shooting occurred um, was the same room actually where Jasmine and I interviewed Craig Greenberg just a few months ago. Mm-hmm. So we were we were just right there um, when when uh, when we were interviewing him. So the alleged shooter, Quintez Brown, he's well known in Louisville. He had been a writer at the Courier Journal in high school and in and afterwards. He specialized in writing about race, uh, racial justice, race, racial policy issues in Louisville and in Kentucky. Uh, and then several months ago, I think we talked about this at the time, uh, he actually turned up missing and was found several days, actually I think like two weeks later in New York. Um, his family at the time asked for privacy while they dealt with his mental health issues. Um, Brown had said he was running for Metro Council in District 5. He didn't file to run for that seat, but I, I think you can still file to run as an independent. So uh, he, he hadn't, he, I guess feasibly still still could i guess if if that's something he wanted to do so in the aftermath of the shooting greenberg said quote um it's not lost on me that the violence my staff and i experience today is far too common in our city too many local families have experienced the trauma of gun violence too many in louisville were not as blessed as my team and i were today to survive clearly much more work needs to be done to end this senseless gun violence and make louisville a safer place for everyone unquote so that was a quote that was in the courier journal um, of course, he has been making the rounds. This is a huge, hugely uh, newsworthy event, and, and he's been in national media. He's been in local media. And, and another quote that I saw today in, at, on Wave, in Wave 3, which is on, in a televised interview that I think is going to be going on tonight, uh, quote, I don't know what led the individual yesterday to shoot, 
Part of me has empathy because my guess is that his experiences were very different than my experiences. So I am empathetic and concerned about that, that there are people in our community that ultimately pick up a gun and use it in that fashion. Yesterday, someone opened fire at me in my office with my teammates. There's no excuse for that, and firing a weapon at someone deserves to have consequences. We need to do everything in our city's collective power to work so that no one else decides to use a weapon in that manner. That should be our goal, unquote. Mr. Brown pleaded not guilty to the charges, which included attempted murder and four counts of wanton endangerment, and his lawyer, Rob Eggert, was quoted by the Courier-Journal saying that Brown was severely mentally ill. The Louisville Community Bail Fund said on Wednesday that they planned to post bond for for Mr. Brown. I think they actually had done that right before we we started the show. Uh, Bond was $100,000. So, I don't know, Jasmine. This story just represents, you know, just a huge tragedy. Mr. Greenberg and his staff had a brush with death and are very clearly going through something really difficult. And the thing is, you can't stop running for office if you're doing it. It's really hard to take a pause. Uh, the, the election's in just a few short months, and, and you have to do what you can to, to basically keep moving through something that's incredibly traumatic and incredibly painful. So, you know, our, our thoughts certainly go out go out for them. Um, and, and, you know, I don't really know what to even say about about Quintez Brown, about Quintez Brown's mental state. I, I don't know him. I have not been around him. Uh, you know, all I know is, is what I see in the media. Um, but one of the things that I can say is, you know, he's a talented writer. I've read a lot of the things that he's written. Um, I, I've seen a lot of the things that he said. And, and, you know, he seemed like an incredibly, immensely talented person with deep insights uh, who is very smart. And, and, and to see this turn of events come about is just deeply saddening and really just shocking so just a tragedy all around is what it looks like to me um and and just i i don't even i don't even really know know what to say um i mean what what are your thoughts jasmine i mean as as this all happened what what were you thinking yeah i mean this just got worse and worse to me throughout the day because when i first heard the news that there was a shooting attempt at Greenberg's campaign office. My thought was like drive-by shooting shot through the window, you know, something like that, which is still horrific and really scary. um, But also different than, than someone walking in and, and pointing a gun at, at multiple people. And, and so hearing the facts were really, terrifying and then when it finally came out who was charged in it that's just devastating um just a kid that had a ton of promise super intelligent and you know we we don't we don't know like why this happened what's going on with him um but it's, it's just really sad all around and and we also know that he's probably not going to get the help he needs in jail or prison, yeah. you know, so um, no, nothing is good about it. And I think the other thing that I've thought about is seeing Craig Greenberg on TV less than 24 hours later. I can't imagine that happening to me yeah. and then going in public or being on camera and talking about it. And so, yeah. That's an incredibly strong thing to have to do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I honestly think Craig Greenberg has acquitted himself really well. I, I think his insights, I think so too. his compassion in the in the moment, you know, 
it's it's hard to react in that way uh, i i've never been shot at i i can't even imagine it uh and and you know that this is grace i think to me this is a very mm-hmm. graceful thing to to have done and and when it comes to to quintez brown yeah i, I it, it's it is just devastating to see and, and to see just the way that things have unfolded over the past year for him where very clearly he he needed help um and, and things just seem to have gotten worse um and, and you know i don't i don't know who he's around or or what it's but but it is just it is just devastating um that that things have seemed to have just deteriorated for him over over the past year i don't i i mean very clearly he isn't gonna get help uh in lmdc um as you know that that six people have died there in the past couple of of months but it is it's really i mean jasmine for me it's really hard for me to 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 look at this with clear eyes because i know people that work there i knew people in the room when it happened and and you know i i'll have to tell you like i'm not proud of of how i thought about this you know when when i heard he was gonna make bond or or whatever like the way that i felt you know was certainly colored by the fact that like he pointed a gun at people i knew and pulled the trigger you know so so I don't know. I'm, I'm probably not the most reliable narrator when it comes to talking about this issue, but it is a tragedy. Uh, it, it is really devastating. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, like I just mentioned, you know, I, I have friends on that campaign. You know, the, the people who work campaigns in Louisville or in Kentucky is, is not like a super huge world. So, you know, it's not like these aren't a lot of people that I've met before, you know, seen and talked to, met their children, you know met their met their families uh and and just those are the thoughts that race through my head is like gosh you know that guy has a three-year-old kid what would have happened and and it is it's just and, and you know i do appreciate craig greenberg seeing the forest for the trees here and saying that what he experienced was something that is experienced every day here in louisville um and, and it's a problem that's only gotten worse uh it is a problem he 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 talked it to, to us about you know public safety was an issue he talked about at at length when he talked to us uh so it's very clearly something that has been on his mind and i think probably will something that be something that's even more on his mind so you know this isn't an uncommon issue in this city um but but you know it is something that doesn't touch my life that often and it did and it did that day and it had a big impact so yeah anything else you want to say about that i don't think i have anything else to add yeah okay well let's leave that there uh jasmine uh <laughs> the talking about the legislative update that we have for our, the bills that we want to talk about <laughs> um probably not that depressing but but not a lot better so why don't you go ahead and talk to us a little bit about the kentucky's push to ban charitable bail funds sure we mentioned this bill briefly a few weeks ago upon finding out that it had been filed, um, but we did want to talk a little bit more about it. It's House Bill 313, and it's a bill that would ban charitable bail organizations, and the bill is pretty simple. It makes it unlawful to operate those. Um, It's sponsored by John Blanton and then co-sponsored by Jason Nemus, Ed Massey, and Thomas Huff, and there hasn't really been, like, a ton of discussion about this bill yet because it hasn't had a committee hearing, but Jason Nemus did release a statement that said the intent of the bill is to ensure that people charged with violent offenses are not bailed out by a company that does not do a proper background check and has no relation to the defendant. 
When a human posts bail, they're effectively vouching for that person because they're posting their own money as bail and they are subject to losing their money if the defendant does not show up to court or reoffends. This is not true for a company. So this bill aims to ensure that people charged with violent crimes are not released by a company that posts their bail. I did want to note that Indiana state legislature has also proposed a bill limiting these types of organizations, but doesn't ban them completely um, the way that the proposed bill in Kentucky would. So the Indiana version would require organizations to get government certification, or if they're not certified, they would be limited to only bailing out two people every six months. And so that's a pretty strict bill as well, but at least it doesn't ban them from happening completely. The sponsor of the Indiana bill explained that part of the reasoning behind it was that bail organizations don't have the same connections to the community as other groups do. And I do want to push back on that a little bit because I think especially, I mean, we have two main bail funds here in Louisville, the Louisville Community Bail Fund and the Bail Project. And the Louisville Community Bail Fund is especially connected to the community. They're not bailing out anyone whose attorney calls them. They're bailing out people who are connected to their community, who they know their mom or they know them. And so I I disagree that um, these bail funds are disconnected to the community. And then the bail project hires local people who are also deeply connected to their community. And with the bail project, there's even a pretty lengthy like process to go through to get them to post bail. Um, they talk to these clients, they talk to their families, they talk to their lawyers. And so I, I don't really agree with the idea that there's no connection to the community with some of these bail organizations. Um, it's not really any different than like a church raising money to post bond for someone, which is something that happens. So that's, that's kind of how I see it. And I mean, honestly, I think you can see Louisville community bail funds connection to its community and, and posting the bond for Quintez Brown. Yeah, he, he's very connected to that community. Uh, there's a lot of kind of, I guess, a lot of the same people are involved in the community bail fund that were involved in like Black Lives Matter Louisville and, and a couple of the, those other groups. And I know that he was involved there, especially during 2020. So, you know, definitely a part of, of that of that community. Um, I, I mean, I can just speak from like what I hear. Uh, and, and that's that like a lot of conservatives in Louisville and a lot of folks across the city have kind of their opinion of the bail funds has become a lot more negative over the past couple of years. You know, I think that the bail project says, you know, 90% of the people that they bail out don't, uh, you know, commit crimes, but just one person becomes like incredibly like that story just kind of like goes everywhere and in those communities. And I do know that it is something that people have been talking about quite a bit. So I think that that's probably why this, this issue is, is reached the fore and, and, you know, the stated reasons that Jason Nemus and, and other folks have uh, probably. Yeah. Isn't. But what's, what's the rate for people showing up to court whose bond isn't posted by bail project? I mean, probably a lot higher, right? That's the thing. But uh, I, I mean, it's not 
based on what the actual statistics are. It's based on like, oh, this person committed a crime and they were and they were bailed out by the bail project, and and that's what people remember. That's why it's an issue. Yeah, I mean, we've been over this um, about about we we did like a whole segment on recidivism not that long ago um and and, i mean the stats kind of back up the fact that you know the bail system is broken and and we've and and this is another thing that's been really frustrating about this entire process is is some of the people that are actually even sponsoring this legislation were some of the people that we had thought would be with us and, and with the idea of reforming the entire bail system and instead of getting any help on that issue where we could really make a big difference and 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 reform the way that that entire system works um we're really just instead moving backwards and, mm-hmm. and making and making this illegal um you know as the political winds have shifted as you know jason nemus gets a more conservative district all of a sudden he's shifted from yeah i can kind of understand why we might want to change the bail system to we're going to ban um these these bail projects so it's and just i know i know you know so republican legislators who at least are supportive or listening about eliminating cash bail but they're not there's been no work to get that done and so we can't have this bill yeah if we're not going to do anything in the area of eliminating or restricting it i as much as i wish it were true that they can't uh in fact they can and it sounds like they probably will uh we'll see uh you know it's worth saying you know this this bill hasn't like been assigned a committee had a hearing yet or anything like that and yeah so, yeah i don't know maybe after today it, it gets one um, yeah uh, and and where there were a lot of people talking about that i mean i saw adam koenig who's up in northern kentucky talking about the you know quintez making bail and and so that that i wonder i wonder how that that event will will impact this bill's prospects in the legislature um i don't know i don't know yeah. So yes, but for right now, the bill isn't moving that fast. Um, but yeah, it just just a depressing trend in terms of how we're trying to change the criminal justice system here in Kentucky. Uh, not not trying to make it better anymore. It doesn't sound like so. That's rough. Okay, three more bad bills. Uh, these three about social policy. So the first one I wanted to talk about was the uh, abortion omnibus bill. So we did talk about that a little bit during the interim. Um, and, and this bill hasn't been filed yet. It was filed finally this week by Representative Nancy Tate, who is one of the um, most anti-abortion legislators in the state. It's HB3. So the fact that it's HB3 indicates that it's a pretty high priority for the GOP. The bill does several things. It's an omnibus, so that's not surprising. So it does require both parents to sign off on an abortion for a minor. That seems really bad to me. There are a couple of controls in the bill for, you know, the cases cases of abuse and, and um, incest and stuff like that. But somebody has to actually be convicted before, you know, they can, you know, before they can be, uh, you know, avoided in this legislation. So... I don't think a lot of the time that people are convicted of these crimes when an abortion would be necessary. So essentially I think a lot of people, a lot of, uh, you know, people who need abortions um, who are the victims of incest um, would then be having to ask their abuser to sign off on them getting an abortion. So that's super bad. Uh, 
that's one thing it does. Another thing the bill does is it makes obtaining abortion pills much more difficult. That was something we talked a lot about in the interim. And um, the last thing it does, one of the other things it does is it requires patients to be informed about abortion reversal. That's not a thing, but it is something that that Republicans and opponents of abortion talk about quite a bit. They haven't in the past let medical reality get in the way of their anti-abortion legislation, and it doesn't seem like they're doing it this time. Okay, so SB 83 and HB 83. So um, actually, SB 83 has just passed the Senate. HB 83 has passed its committee. These two bills are basically the same thing. They would ban trans girls from participating in school athletics. So KHSAA, which is the governing body that governs high school sports here in Kentucky, I guess, yeah, uh, they they already actually have a ban on trans girls participating in athletics. So this is redundant, except for that it would just make it a law. Um, Fisher Wells is a girl who is a, a, a member of Westport Middle School's field hockey team. And she actually testified about her experience, uh, the positive impacts of playing sports as a, a trans girl, and uh, the you know the the how how that's really helped her out in, in the midst of you know living life as a trans person is is hard, <laughs> and and anything you can do to make that any easier, that's probably something we should try to support. Uh, so that is what I think, but that's not what Republicans think. They weren't really phased by. Fisher Wells' testimony and passed the bill through committee and actually passed SB 83 through the Senate. Although when they passed it through the Senate, they, they did actually pass an amendment which excluded elementary sports. That was included at Senator Karen Berg's request. And Senator Berg spoke about the bill. And uh, when she spoke about the bill, she talked about um, her trans son, which is really powerful. I mean, there was a moment like this last session when Representative Roberts um, talked about being a a victim of rape. Um, And, and, you know, these personal stories, they... (laughs) I wish they mattered more, but but they do, you know. I guess they just kind of drive a point home a little bit more. But but her, yeah, her speaking about her son was was really powerful. I thought so. Those are the bans on trans children participating in sports, or just trans trans girls. Sorry, it's just trans girls. All right, HB fifty one, different bill. It it is a bill that's passed its committee this week. This ban this bill would ban mask mandates in schools and in child care centers. Mask mandates are banned in several other Republican states across the country, especially in the South, but also in, in other places in you know the Midwest. At one point during the pandemic, nearly every school system in the entire state opted to have a mask mandate. Uh, we had a whole special session. The Republicans insisted upon it. Uh, they passed a bill you know, allowing school districts to not have mask mandates, and basically nobody took them up on it. A, a lot of school districts have removed their mask mandates now, um, but it does seem a little silly to me that, you know, we already gave school districts a choice and we're letting communities make the decision for themselves and Republicans want to just ban the ability of school districts to make that choice themselves. So, yeah, uh, three pretty egregious, pretty bad social policy bills there. Any one of those you want to say anything about, Jasmine? Uh, they're they're all terrible and terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they are, and and really harmful. Yeah, every every single one of them will be harmful for a lot of 
people. Yeah, it's it's rough out there. Um, again, just like with the the ban on uh, bail funds, none of these have made it all the way through the process. I don't know, you know, of course, just SB 83 is the only one that's even passed a chamber. So we have a ways to go before these become law, but but not great, not great stuff from from the Republicans this time. So, okay. I did. Oh, gosh, I didn't even talk about the the big bill I wanted to talk about, which is HB4. So that is a bill um, that would cut unemployment benefits, reduce unemployment benefits for workers uh, who are let go from their jobs. So what this bill does, this is a little bit more complicated of a bill. And it is like already it's it's going through the process. It's it's uh, high priority It's HB4. So the bill actually pegs the number of weeks of eligibility for unemployment benefits to the statewide unemployment rate. So currently benefits can last 26 weeks. And now they could be actually as low as 12 weeks. And that's only if the average unemployment rate is below 4.5% for the whole state. The maximum amount of benefits would be 24 weeks, uh, which is below the maximum now. And that only triggers if the unemployment rate is above 10%. So very rarely does that happen. Um, and that would be when workers would be uh, eligible to receive less unemployment than they do now. So the Average unemployment rate is something that has to be calculated for a six-month period, too. And, of course, the way that unemployment works is a lot of the times unemployment crises happen very acutely. It's just like something happens in the economy and a lot of people lose their jobs. Uh, And if that happened, uh, of course, the six-month average wouldn't change for several months. So people would be trying to make it work with 12 weeks of unemployment um, when there were basically no jobs. So, So that's another reason why this bill is a pretty bad idea. The bill requires unemployment uh, recipients to do five verifiable work search activities each week. Three of those have to be applying or interviewing for a job. Now there are requirements around looking for work, but there's just one job contact required per week um, currently, and that would be increased to five. This bill also gives five weeks of additional unemployment to workers who are enrolled in job training or certification. So the chief sponsor of this legislation is Russell Weber, who is in Shepherdsville. Um, as HB4, of course, I, like I said, represents a major priority for Republicans. The GOP points to the worker participation rate, which is 53% right now, as a, a, a major reason for this legislation. However, um, the reasons people aren't in the workforce are myriad. Uh, I don't think unemployment is even a major factor. In uh, you know, receiving unemployment is not the reason why workers are not participating in the uh, the, the employment economy. Childcare costs, uncertainty around the pandemic, and a lack of job opportunities, I think, are probably bigger factors. At least that's what it seems like to me. So the Chamber of Commerce were major cheerleaders for this legislation. So Sarah Davisher Wisdom, um, who's the CEO of the Greater Louisville Chamber, said, quote, HB4 will make necessary improvements to modernize Kentucky's unemployment or uh, yeah, unemployment insurance benefits and make them more sustainable for employers and encourage rapid reemployment. That was a quote that she had gave the Courier Journal. Another reason for this change, and to me, I don't really trust Sarah Davisher Wisdom's uh, quote above. I think the real reason is that um, companies that lay off workers have to pay into the unemployment system. And, uh, you know, if you reduce the amount of benefits that those workers receive, you reduce the amount of pay, the amount of money that that employers have to pay to support the system. So um, essentially, this is, to me, basically just a bailout for companies who want to lay off their workers. 
Democrats in the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy were very opposed to this legislation. Uh, that's not surprising, I don't think. Dustin Pugel, who's been on the show before, his testimony in writing about this bill pointed out that states with unemployment benefits similar to those envisioned by HB4 have similar number of unfilled positions as Kentucky does now. And that it's very unlikely that HB4 would solve that problem, which is uh, the main one that Republicans pointed out. There's a lot of open positions and not a lot of people to fill them. But that's true in a lot of places in the South that have unemployment systems that are more akin to what we've seen um, under H or that we would see under HB4. Governor Bashir said that his pre-K plan would do much more to solve the worker participation problem than cutting unemployment. I think that's correct. And on the floor of the House, many Democrats predicted problems for workers. Josie Raymond, who's a big champion for pre-K, she echoed the governor's thoughts that child care was the real problem. I think that's probably right. So Democrats were actually joined by several Republicans in eastern Kentucky in opposing this bill. John Blanton, who's a Republican from Salyersville in McGoffin County, he offered a floor amendment, which would have kept 26 weeks of eligibility for unemployment and would have reduced the job search requirements, basically just kind of gutting the bill. He said that his region didn't have a lot of great pro job prospects in the first place and, quote, we're not going to uh, improve our workforce participation rate, but we very well may increase our homeless rate, unquote. So, you know, powerful words from John Blanton, Republican mm -hmm. from Salyersville. Uh, <laughs> he's right. Um, and then Norma Kirk McCormick, who's a Pikeville, she's, she called the bill super bad. I agree with Norma, Norma Kirk McCormick. Who, who could have seen that coming? <laughs> At the end of the day, the House did pass the bill, but it was by a 58-37 margin, which is relatively tight for the Kentucky House. Fifteen Republicans ended up voting no on the bill, many of whom were from eastern Kentucky. So that bill now heads to the Senate. Um, and just like all these other ones, we will we will see what happens. They haven't all made it through the process yet. Okay, woof. All right, lots of bad legislation to talk about, uh, but Andy Bashir has been a little bit busy. So on Wednesday, Governor Bashir enacted an executive order to provide tax relief and proposed a temporary tax decrease in the legislature. Um, he said these proposals were in response to the 7.5% inflation that we've seen over the past year. That's numbers pretty new. Um, and yeah, I think he decided that he needed to do something about it. And he uh, apparently has the power to do so. The uh, executive order that he uh, put in place freezes the motor vehicle property tax. That tax actually increases every year automatically. But the legislature explicitly asked him to do that uh, and in a resolution. And the governor said, hey, if the, the legislature actually thinks I have the power to do something, yeah, I'll go ahead and do it. Because usually uh, it's the other way around. It's usually them telling him he doesn't have power to do something. So, you know, that that's going to save a lot of Kentuckians a lot of money. If you've already paid your motor vehicle tax, if you have a January or February birthday, um, you can get a rebate. So do that if you if you haven't done that. Um yeah, uh, the other thing that the governor did was propose a 1% temporary decrease in the sales tax. Kentucky sales tax is 6%. Currently, he would reduce it to 5%. And he wanted it to happen during the ne next fiscal year. Um, that runs from July to July. Angie Hatton was at the press conference and is going to be the chief sponsor of the legislation that is proposed by the governor. Um, yeah, you know, based on the actions of the Republicans during this session and previous sessions, it's likely that this proposal, at least for the legislation, is going to be completely ignored. The Republicans say that they're working on what they call comprehensive tax reform, and the governor mocked that by saying that that strategy was raising the sales tax while lowering individual and corporate income taxes, which, of course, benefit people with more money who are less likely to spend money in the economy. Jasmine, we have a pretty significant surplus and a big, big rainy day fund. That's something we've talked about at length. 
the legislature doesn't seem very interested in doing anything with it. They seem like they just wanted to like sit in the checking account. Um, and so the governor is proposing something. They won't let him do it on the demand side. They won't let him increase spending. So he's um, doing what he can to put some of that money that we have just sitting around into the pockets of Kentuckians. So you know, obviously, this wasn't his first choice. I think his first choice was to have things like universal pre-K and to have things like, um, you know, the the Life Science Center that in Covington that, that Buddy Wheatley is going to talk about in our interview coming up. But because he's having trouble getting any of the, those across, he's using what power he has to put some of that money back into the pockets of Kentucky taxpayers. So, um, yeah. Uh, I agree. I think in his situation, that's the right way to, to go about doing it, and he did it in the right order. Um, any thoughts that you have about the tax relief portion of this, uh, about Andy Bouchier's tax relief proposal? I'm happy about the executive order because people have been scaring me about their motor vehicle taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They did, they did put it into a holiday, so that's that's good, I suppose. And I think my husband just paid his this week, so... Yeah, you'll get a rebate. Maybe how how to figure out how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Call the governor. <laughs> What's his phone number? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Well, let's get to our interview with Buddy Wheatley. Buddy Wheatley is a member of the Kentucky House of Representatives from Covington. He was first elected in 2018 after, retire- after the retirement of Arnold Simpson and was reelected by a healthy margin in 2020. Prior to his election, he served as Covington's fire chief. His district was one that was significantly impacted by redistricting. So, Buddy Wheatley, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. Well, thank you, Jasmine. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks, Robert. Uh, you did have to get that jab in about how bad, how badly. The district was uh, gerrymandered, but um, that's okay. I think we might talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that is a big thing that we definitely wanted to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I mean we can start there. So after you know redistricting the sixty fifth, the sixty fifth district, which is your district, it looks a lot different. So you know, of course, previously had been kind of this cohesive district that contained Covington and and a small area kind of around Covington, but mostly just Covington. And now the district you know, no longer includes all of Covington. A big part in the South has been cut out of it. And it does include a bunch of conservative and rural areas in Western Kenton County. So can can you tell us, you know, from the beginning of the session, from, you know, maybe even before the session, when these maps were revealed, kind of what your thought process was and (laughs) what are the, what are the stages of, I don't know, grief or whatever that you've been experiencing since this has all happened to you? Well, you know, I'm going to say it this way, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous honor to represent any 45,000 people in Kentucky. And, and, and I look forward to being the voice of the district, whether it's uh, the new district or the district I was elected to in 2020. Um, I get very connected to the district I serve, you know, so in the previous district, I had many connections to the neighborhoods, the people, the businesses, and I'll, I'm going to do the same thing, whether, you know, it's the, the old district or the new district. So, um, one thing to kind of understand about this, this the proposed district, the new district, which does include uh, Edgewood, Crestview Hills, Fort Wright, those are some of the new areas. It's not really very rural. It's it's a very uh, suburban type district, but it is a very Republican leaning areas of the of the of Kenton County. Um, but there are lots of Democrats there, and the work that I do, um, you know, I. I 
I, I do it for the district. So I'm going to do everything in my power to do what I can for the district, whether, like I said, it's the other district or the new district. And, and this gets into, uh, of course, there's a legal case going on related to the maps and we'll see where that goes. And, and Robert, you asked about what were my thoughts going in. You know, I, I knew that there would be, there had to be some changes. My district was underpopulated. So first and foremost, the population equalization has to happen. And I knew I, I would be picking up new districts. Um, the way that this was particularly done uh, seemed gerrymandered in, in my opinion. And I expressed that very uh, uh, strongly, I guess you say on the floor. And I feel, I don't feel good about Covington being split up the way it was uh, with this, with these new maps. But we have to do this, all legislators and the legislators in Louisville and other parts of the state, you know, you take on a new district and it's yours and you represent the people and you represent them to your fullest. And that's what I plan to do. And I, I will be their voice. So uh, you it's, it's time to move on if, again, depending on the courts, but I'm, I'm ready to go. So, yeah, that's, that's a very good attitude. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always just consistently impressed with all the people that we've talked to in the midst of this process. I feel like I would be much more upset than you guys are. So, uh, good, good for you. But, uh, you know, we did have Sherilyn Stevenson on last week, who's in, in sort of the same boat with her district very much, uh, changing, um, between cycles. But, you know, one of the things we talked to her about was how she's no stranger to close elections. You know, she won her first race by like eight votes or something, and then won her second one by two percentage points. But you, you know, you've won both of your races pretty comfortably. And this is the 65th has been a pretty comfortable Democratic district that all the time that you've been running in it. But this district, at least the way it looks and the way it's voted in the past is very much a toss up. It's a very close district. Um, and, and so I'm just curious, uh, you know, somebody who's running political races, uh, but maybe facing a little bit of a different reality in this district. How how is how is that impacting you? How is that changing your approach to the session or your approach to, to your campaign? Uh, as as things kind of start ramping up here, you know, I'm glad you pointed out. I won by 20 plus points in, in both my previous elections, um, but you know, I don't think my campaign strategy will change all that much. Uh, I'll try to connect with the voters. I'll do personal visits, door to door, social media, direct mail, uh, all the ways candidates find to make a connection with their respective districts. So. Uh, I've never ran like, you know, I'm in a comfy seat and uh, I just have to do a few things. I've always run like, you know, I was either behind or it was going to be a very close race. Um, again, you know, even campaigning gets you out into the district, knowing the district, knowing the voters, knowing what they want and what they don't want. It's almost like polling, you know, for me. And it, it won't be that way this so much uh, this time as much. It'll really be about, you know, trying to convince uh, voters in a tighter, um, what's proposed to be a tighter uh, the race to run in. But uh, I look forward to it, you know, and I actually do. It's a challenge. Um, I, I can say this. Um, there aren't a lot of good numbers that you can look at with the district, uh, District 65, uh, the new district versus the old district, because the 2020 election did not provide precinct data. But for the 2016 versus the 2018 uh, races, Hillary Clinton won my district by eight points in 2016. And I won that district the next two races by 20 points. So 
that gives me some hope, of course. And uh, I know it's a lot of work. Um, I have good people in the in the new district who are, you know, chomping at the bit. And that's a, that's the best way to say it, to to help and get help get the word out, uh, help me in the in this race. And uh, while I'm I will be confident, I'll always run like I'm a little bit behind. Well, I you know that that strategy in the past certainly seems like it's going to pay dividends in the future. So that's that's good to hear. Um, so you know you you talked a little bit about this, but one of the things that we're always curious about, uh, you know, coming from uh, outside of Northern Kentucky, is, is kind of how. The region's small cities, uh, you know, are are one of the most unique pieces of of the region. And and you know, you know, you you like you mentioned, uh, you're losing some parts of Covington, uh, southern parts of Covington, parts of uh, Covington that actually probably used to be their own individual smaller communities that were you know brought into Covington as time has gone along. And you've dropped some of them, and you've picked up some other small areas. And, and you mentioned you know Edgewood, which they made sure to to cut into your district to pick up your opponent, I guess. Uh, and and so you know you are uh, having to introduce yourself to a whole bunch of new people who have a whole bunch of different local concerns and so you know from that perspective talk to us a little bit about how you're communicating with the local officials in those areas which oftentimes have a very deep connection to those communities and what you're doing to kind of introduce yourself and get in front of those people it's a really good question um we we do have uh, a lot of cities a lot of what might be in some bigger areas and and uh even even a, uh, a full city is uh, maybe the size of uh, Louisville or some other um, mid-major type size cities. We just broke them down into cities. I think at one time I heard that Kitten County had more cities, more municipalities per capita than any other county in the country. Um, and they have their own uh, individual personalities, of course. So, Robert, I treat this like, you know, Covington itself has uh, 17 or 18 neighborhood associations and while Edgewood and Fort Wright and Crestview Hills aren't neighborhood associations, they are their own entities with their own uh, every, everything that cities have. And, and some of some of those areas are kind of maxing out themselves because they have nowhere else to go as far as new new residents. You know, they 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 are their populations pr- probably won't grow that much more. But it is I treat them. You know, I will treat them uh, with their officials and their city officials, getting to know them, getting to know what their needs and desires are, you know, everything from the roads to the schools to the uh, state issues that affect their area. So um, in that sense, uh, it, it is it is challenging. And to me, cities are what I call communities of interest. And that's the thing that I really argued about on the floor when it comes to splitting up Covington. And I don't even like the fact that this, my new district has, the city of Crestview Hills only has two precincts. And they gave me one. So if they're going to, you know, give me a new area, why not just go ahead and give me both precincts in Crestview Hills? Um, and there are a few other things like that. Uh, I, I appreciate that they gave me the three precincts in Fort Wright. So I have all of the city of Fort Wright. And I have I have connections to all these areas anyway. It, it really isn't that, uh, that great a difference between some of Southern Covington and Fort Wright and Edgewood and Crestview Hills. So, you know, I have a connection to the fire service and public safety in these areas, and I will uh, call upon them and, and uh, hopefully uh, they will be helpful. I think they will. All right. So, you know, you've had your 
I'm sure you've had your fair share of redistricting talk. So we want to talk to you about some bills that you filed too. So you're the chief sponsor of a bill which would move police and other workers considered hazardous to be placed into a more generous pension plan. And so this bill has several co-sponsors from both sides of the aisle, but it has yet to be assigned to committee. Can you tell us a little bit more about this plan and tell us if you have any hope for its passage in this session or a future one? Yes. Um, this this bill, which will seem kind of simple, we're going the bill asks to take all tier three hazardous duty employees and place them back into the tier two system. And the tier two system is a defined benefit system, so it simply uh, would would make it so that these hazardous duty and hazardous duty ninety nine percent of them are going to be police officers, law enforcement firefighters and corrections and areas where we're having just a horrific time of recruiting. Uh, we're short in almost every entity in the state is short in recruiting for these areas. And a big reason, number one reason probably is pay. But the second uh, uh, cited reason, at least in my own work has, has shown to be, it's the retirement system. It's the retirement. So the retirement is not nearly as secure. So to call it more generous, I call it more secure. Um, people like to have a secure retirement. And when you have a defined benefit system, you have a lot more say over what your benefits are going to be by the time you retire. And that's what it does simply. Now, the bigger issue, of course, is the, the way that we recruit and retain any new employees in the post-pandemic, during the pandemic, um, we have to stand out and public safety employees or workers throughout the country typically have a little bit better benefits than the um, other state workers or other general public workers. You know, their jobs are more risky. Uh, they live less years. Their life expectancy is less. And that's one of the reasons why they have a little bit better retirements. And, and uh, if people don't recognize this, the city of or the the uh, urban government of Louisville has a special pension system for police and fire. The state and all the other cities do not. Um, so they have a defined benefit pension in, in Lexington and in many other parts of the country where in the, in the state of Kentucky, we don't. So Jasmine, you also asked about, you know, um, the, the current status of the bill, who is on the bill, um, what is its chance of passage? Um, I can say that I'm working right now to really move this bill. And when I first filed it, or when I first even had the concept of doing it years ago, um, it was like, well, we've just gone to tier three. We're likely not to go back to tier two in any time soon. But the pandemic itself has shown how much, how needed this is. And um, my, my work, I guess, to bring it to the forefront and to bring it forward at this time and to talk to my uh, counterparts on the other side of the aisle, they see it and they agree. And I am uh, working very hard to, to move the bill. Um, the real work is going to have to be the Senate because there are some more, I guess you can call champions of the tier three system over on the Senate side, but I'm working that even. So um, what are the chances at, may not be greater than 50 50 at this point but things can change and i plan to work on it and it's just near and dear to my heart that's where i come from as a retired firefighter 
And I was around in 2013 when they were changing the law. We were, we were adding tier three as a pension system. And we said, you know, this is not going to be good for hazardous duty. It's not going to be good for our police and fire. Um, it's going to hurt us and, it, and it's come to fruition. It's, it's kind of a sad thing to see, but we've got a chance to, to correct it. So I hope we do. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because a lot of Republicans, you know, really campaign on being supportive of police mm -hmm. and law enforcement, um, but they haven't been so supportive of defined benefit plans and <laughs> they wanted to change the pension system. And so um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that bill. Something else that you've been working on has been election reform, and you've sponsored several bills about election reform, including bills to extend voting hours, allowing same-day voter registration, allowing independents to vote in partisan primaries, and removing straight ticket voting. So tell us why you would like to see Kentucky's election process change and whether you've been able to make any progress on any parts of that agenda with the leaders of the legislature. You know, I, when, when I ran in 2018 for the first time, and I would consider running for a while, um, elections were important to me, of course, and the election laws. But this is something that is just, uh, you know, really taking hold with me, and that is access to the polls. Mm -hmm. And the basic, you know, uh, fact that we have felons who don't get the chance to vote, even after serving their terms, was sort of the, the impetus of really getting interested in this issue. And I've supported all of those uh, measures that would make make that uh, make access to the polls better for our, our felons uh, who have served their terms. But then the, the the pandemic and the recognition that Kentucky's the one of the most repressive states in the union when it comes to access to the polls. Our polls close earlier than they need to. Um, our constitution allows us to be open till seven p.m., but we're not for some reason, and there are reasons, but. Uh, they're not great reasons. The fact that we have, we have to provide some kind of technical excuse why we have to vote by uh, absentee ballot. We have to have uh, a list of about 11 different excuses. It's, there's no need for that. You know, we can do no excuse absentee balloting too. The fact that we don't have early voting days, you know, I, I worked very hard uh, for House Bill 574 and I wasn't this is the bill that passed in 2021 which extended at least a few voting days I worked to get us to two weeks you know we, we were there on one of the early um, versions of the bill and again it was uh, that other chamber um, that uh, really didn't work they weren't gonna allow that to pass but we said and I said at that time I will be introducing bills in the future that opens up more early voting days and it's a greater access to the poll issue to me. So that that is one of those reasons. You've mentioned uh, straight ticket voting and independence voting. You know, these are just more opportunities to get people to vote and to not look at voting as such a partisan thing where you just have to press a button and uh, you, you suddenly have all one side. And there were, there were Republicans who were pushing for no straight ticket voting before 2016. And suddenly they're not so in favor of it, but uh, we understand that. And, um, you know, I, I think um, straight ticket voting is something is, that has was popular or was 
more part of state laws many, many years ago, but state after state after state, I think we're down to six states now that permit straight ticket voting and Kentucky's one of them. So we need to remove that. Now, independents, independents are um, uh, not able to vote in our primaries. And a lot of our veterans are independents and they're left out of the system. Um, so they're left out of voting um, one way or the other during a primary. Now, when they, under my bill, they would be able to come to the primary and choose one of the ballots. So it's not a full open primary uh, system that I'm uh, trying to get past with this bill, but it will allow independents at least to go to the go to the primaries. Again, access to the polls, more voting, more voters. Kentucky does not have a uh, great voter turnout. I think we're uh, in the bottom half of the of voter turnout in uh, the United States. The United States is own voter turnout is not that great. So I, I didn't throw in their voter registration and the bill that I have, uh, the omnibus voting bill includes same day registration, motor voter registration. Um, these are just all access to the poll things where we're just trying to get more people to vote. And um, while one party looks at that as like, that's not a good thing because, you know, there's fraud and I don't even want to go into those crazy theories that they think is, is, are going on, but um, it is, it's disheartening to know that democracy is being thwarted, I guess, by some of their work. And um, we just need to work on it. We need to keep moving on it. And I, I won't stop on it, you know, as long as I'm doing this. Yeah, well, we think those are all good bills that you filed um, in favor of election reform. Another bill we wanted to talk about that is maybe lesser known, um, you're also the chief sponsor of a bill that would make a technical change to how cremations are carried out in Kentucky. And so this type of bill typically represents a big and important change, but to maybe a smaller number of people um, and you know, not that wouldn't have an impact on everybody. Can you tell us what it's like trying to advance legislation like this as the member of a minority party? I'm glad you asked about that. Um, it's called alkaline hydrolysis. It's a it's a newer method to uh, for body cremation, and uh, it's very environmentally friendly. So the um, this is a situation where a legislator listens to his consistent constituents. And I had an entrepreneur who was who said, hey, we, we can't do this in Kentucky, or at least there's not a, a path to do it. So, you know, would you be interested in promoting a bill like this? I have no connection to uh, cremation or funeral homes or anything like that. Everything you do in this state, of course, or in any state, uh, it, it uh, has this people who are for it and the people who might be against it. There aren't a lot of entities or people who would be against alkaline hydrolysis. So it is interesting to promote or to, to try to get a bill passed like this. Um, I've had, uh, this bill was one of the first bills in the interim to get a hearing and there were, there was no objections. Uh, that was an informational thing. So during the inter interim, of course, we don't pass bills, but we hear uh, some bills that might be passed in the future. I have since talked to the uh, entrepreneur, and actually there's a group of entrepreneurs who are interested in this bill, and uh, we will be starting to see if we can get it to move. Um, and it, it probably has a better chance than my uh, election bill, that's for sure. 
Well, that's good to hear that maybe one Democratic bill might get passed. Um, I, I just said real quick, um, today the uh, orders of the day, which are, these are the bills that have passed, that could be passed on the floor um, any day now because they've passed committees and have had the, the proper number of readings. And there are three bills, three Democratic bills on there um, and out of about 50. Yeah, it, it seems like there there have been a couple more, and Democrats are getting a hearing every now and then. Yeah. Um, whereas, like nothing, nothing was happening for Democrats for a little while. But let me say this too, you know, uh, about that. We have a lot of great bills, and we have a lot of uh, great concepts. And uh, you know, some of us Democrats were saying, you know, look, this is so good. If you want to have a Republican take over this bill to get it passed. That's okay with us because the policy is that good. So that's happening in a couple areas. Mm -hmm. um, uh, some of my colleagues, and I don't need to get into the bills themselves because we want to get them passed. It's good policy. So um, we're hoping that uh, there'll be more bills, even though those 50 bills I mentioned and only three are Democrats, some of them have some Democratic uh, yeah. uh, connections to them. One other thing we wanted to talk to you about is we're in a budget year and we're deep into that budgeting process and it looks like Republicans are moving forward with pretty much all of their own ideas and, and leaving the governor's budget behind. So um, if you could change the GOP's mind about a few of the governor's ideas, what would you hope that they included? Well, um, I have many things, but uh, I'll start with... Uh, I love universal pre-K or four-year-old pre-K funding, and I really hope that there's some consideration for that. But overall, let me say this first about the Republican budget and how this whole process played out. Um, I'm not so opposed to the Republican version or the House version of a bill, uh, a budget being proposed early on, and then the, go the governor's budget being proposed. But it's the way that this was done that was particularly disturbing this time. Mm -hmm. So in the future, if it's done, and we know that there's going to be a House uh, budget bill and then a uh, the governor's bill, whether it doesn't matter who, what party is in power, that's a decent way to kind of meld these bills together uh, the, for the budget. But with this, you know, we had it's sort of a one-upsmanship that is uh, kind of silly. It's kind of playing political games. And this is the budget. This is why we're here. This is every two years. You know, we, we're here to pass the budget. Um, but there are other issues that uh, that are playing out. Well, like we did it first or we got this in. And, and now the fact that the governor has some really good parts of his budget, but they're only his ideas, they may not get into the House budget. The, and the budget, again, is passed the House, goes to the Senate, and it, it will be likely there will be some adjustments. And we're hoping to get some of the governor's idea ideas, which are good ideas, particularly one I'm going to talk about here in a second, um, besides uh, four-year-old pre-K, that there's hesitancy on the other side, I can tell you, because that's the governor's idea. And, and, I, and I'll, say, I'll talk about one. One is a, is a bill or is a uh, part of the budget measure is to provide a, a life, life sciences lab built in Covington. And it's a small project, $10 million. And for some reason, it got labeled as the governor's project. Well, it's not. It really is 
the project of some entrepreneurs in our area. We have some really cutting edge uh, life sciences wet lab work being done in this area. And there is not a similar type of uh, life sciences community uh, between Columbus and Nashville in, in the Cincinnati, greater Cincinnati area is perfectly placed to have this kind of this kind of uh, um, operation and we have the everybody ready to do it but somehow it's getting a little bit tagged to the governor and, and there's some hesitancy so part of my work is to get that passed and get it in, in, into the budget process. Before we let you go are there any other pieces of legislation that you would like to see advance this year? I am a um, I'm a labor attorney, so um, almost everything related to um, a more labor-friendly state, the workforce, uh, I would like to see get passed, whether it's, you know, changing us back to a prevailing wage state, uh, taking away work, right to work, which we could talk about those two issues for a long time. I would support, but I support a living wage. Uh, I support the right to, you know, to bargain and collectively bargain and in public sector bargaining. So I think those are all areas that I'd love to see some work done. There's some bills out there that uh, we could get passed. But, you know, what I what I love about our labor community in Kentucky is that we're working for those things that are not necessarily related to more union union members and union organization. It's for workers. It's for the employees. It's for the workforce. And we know that when we have more people working and we have people working in jobs that are um, paid a better wage, they, those are the people who spend money in our economy. You know, they're not the people who at the top who are going to maybe invest some of that money or hold that money back or, you know, let it trickle down. These are people who are spending the money and will spend it quickly and spend it because they have to. And they should, and they um, they want to be um, you know active people in our economy, and we're we're kind of holding them back by not having many things that we could have in the workforce. Absolutely, yeah. I think we both echo that sentiment, especially Jasmine, who is a public sector union employee. So that's uh, good for her. Uh, but yes, uh, you know. Oh, go ahead. go ahead. No, no. I was going to ask you: Do you have a, a collective bargaining agreement? No. <laughs> well, let's talk more. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a long story. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, before, you know, uh, just for the folks up in Northern Kentucky who may be in your district, or newly in your district, or other people who are just interested in, um, you know, getting to know you or, or may have, uh, you know, help that they may want to offer, how can they get involved in your campaign or get more information about you? The best way to do it, is, of course, is to c- contact me at a couple at- my website buddywheatley.com and you'll find out a lot more about me and a lot more about my history a lot more about my my uh, biography uh i am a um a proud former i'm actually current union member of the the iaff international association of firefighters the kentucky professional firefighters association and um you'll find my twitter handle on there buddy wheatley k at buddy wheatley ky and social media contacts. Um, you can always uh, contact me on my cell phone, 859-912-4847. That's how Robert texts me, so um, uh, please do. And uh, it's great to have had as much support. Robert, I have to tell you that, you know, since this has happened to the district, um, there's been this real uniting up in, up in our area about, you know, they can't do that to us. They can't do that to our Democrats. And 
And, you know, uh, Representative Rachel Roberts is uh, the Newport, the 67th district uh, representative. And they they've messed with her district a little bit, too. And there's it's fired some people up up here. Yeah, well, uh, you know, if, if things go uh, the way that they have been going in the past 10 years, it could be that, you know, you might have some new Democratic friends there before the, the next 10 years are up. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But in the meantime, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate you being on today. Thank you, guys. It's great to be here. Okay, how can people get a hold of us, Jasmine? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays. You could subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.